Hello and welcome once again to the Live Happy Now podcast. I am your host, J.R. Houston. Thrilled to have you here once again, wherever you are in the world and however you may be listening. It's just exciting to be welcomed into your world and we welcome you into ours. We want to hear from you. We are running a really cool deal right now on LiveHappy.com, a two-minute survey about Live Happy Now. You just got to tell us what you think. Uh, there's some questions on there. Like I said, it takes about two minutes. And if you enter it, you have a chance to win some Live Happy gear. We got t-shirts, we got cups, we got all kinds of stuff that we are going to send your way should you be chosen at random, but you cannot win if you do not enter. So please fill out that survey about Live Happy Now podcast at livehappy.com slash survey and pick up a uh, new copy of Live Happy magazine. We've got a new edition out. It is on newsstands everywhere. If you are not the type that likes to flip through a magazine, well, we got you covered there too, my friend. The digital edition is available in the Apple Store and the Google Play Store. And it is fantastic. That's the one that I read personally because I like digital things. And you should too. Uh, but if the print magazine is more your style, it is available. Newsstands everywhere. We are very excited about our guest, a New York Times bestselling author, The Book of Awesome. Neil Pazricha is a Harvard MBA, uh, one of the most popular TED speakers of all time, and the director of the Institute for Global Happiness. And he's dedicated the past 15 years of his life to developing leaders, which we can always use more of. He's created global programs inside the world's largest companies and spoken to hundreds of thousands of people around the world. And he's going to share with us more about his new book, The Happiness Equation, where want nothing plus do anything equals have everything. Well, Neil, you have sold millions of copies of books, and The Book of Awesome is a book that has a really interesting backstory. Now you've moved on to write all kinds of other things, and the new book is, of course, The Happiness Equation. What what inspired you to write that book? Well, you know, I had met somebody new. Her name was Leslie. We ended up falling in love. We moved in together. We got engaged. We got married. And then on the flight home from our honeymoon on the airplane, she wasn't feeling well. And then Leslie visited a pharmacy on the layover and on the actual airplane, as we were bracing for a 12 hour flight home from Southeast Asia, she comes to me and she said, I just went to the airplane bathroom and I'm pregnant. Oh my. <laughs> on the actual airplane. I know. And so when I landed back home, and by the way, if you ever want to score a free muffin on an airplane, all you have to do is tell the flight attendant. We just found out some good news. Um, but I was full of this thought that lots of parents have, which is I want to create a happy life for my child. And how do I do that? And for me, you know, I started writing a letter to my unborn child. I wrote the phrase, dear baby, I wanted you to have this in case I didn't have a chance to tell you. Love, dad. And nine months later, it had evolved into a 300-page letter, uh, which now is published as the happiness equation. So obviously it's been through the editing process to take out a lot of the lovey-dovey language and some of the things that didn't necessarily fit the entire uh, book, but the happiness equation, its origin was a letter I wrote to my unborn son about how to live a happy life. We've talked about kids being inspirations and, and kids being uh, the, the target of these kinds of messages so that, that we can uh, spread happiness and, and, and make a happier world uh, at the ground level. That's, that's really interesting. There, there's so many things that go into being happy. Why, why do you think it's hard for folks to, to achieve a happiness or to uh, come to a happiness? 
Well, I feel that it's because our species, Homo sapiens, have been around for 300,000 years. And in the last 299,950 of them, maybe 900 of them, we've been all about looking for problems, finding problems, and solving problems. I mean, that's how we have survived. It's how we've become the most dominant mammal on the planet. You find the saber-toothed tiger hunting you in the African plains, and you throw a spear at it, or you run away. And so I think that now, these days, we had it pretty good. I mean, if people that, people that have the time to listen to this podcast or contemplate their own happiness, we are in that section of the world that sort of has enough safety and security and hopefully food on the table. And so only now are we taking these, you know, three-pound complicated piles of flesh in our head and saying, hey, brains, you know, rather than look for problems and solve them, you know, I want you to think about being happy. And it's a pretty big switch. In fact, it's so hard because the way we've designed the world is all a reflection of the way our brains naturally work, which is the problem-finding brain. So, you know, you get a blood test back from your doctor. If you're me, you eyeball the high cholesterol or you look for the thing that sticks out. If you get a math test back, you look quickly for the one question you got wrong, right? Every single thing we do is oriented towards finding the problem. And so when it comes to our own happiness, it is a real mind shift on instead contemplating how we can be more content and free and relaxed and happy. You know, uh, one of the things that is in your book that we talk about a lot here is getting people to understand that happiness is a choice. You know, really, it's the things that we do. You know, you, you, you refer to the same study we do, which is that 10% of our happiness is environment and 40% is activities that we choose to do. Um, and, and the other thing that a lot of people struggle with is, you know, the concept that they've got to wait for happiness, you know, that you can't be happy right now. But, you know, you, you talk about it really well in your book is that, uh, in fact, you, you say the first secret to happiness is uh, be happy first. Can you elaborate on yeah. that a little bit? <laughs> Sure, exactly. And, you know, by the way, I listened to your great podcast with Sonia Lebomirsky where she says, hey, you know what, it's more of a theory than an actual study when it comes to those percentages. And I agree with her because, truthfully, it's just a model that people quickly grasp. And then, you know, from there we can have a conversation. But most of these positive psychology studies, while I respect them, while I appreciate them, while I, I quote them, I do feel like they just provide a skeleton that a conversation can then live on top of. I, I'm trying to say I overvalue the conversation. And in terms of the model, you know, my parents were immigrants. My dad's from India. My mom's from Kenya. They moved to Canada in the late 1960s. And the doctrine that they, you know, ran our house underneath was kind of like this. If I can say it in six words, it went like this. It was great work, arrow, big success, arrow, be happy. Right, Neil? Like if you study hard, then you get good grades, then you're happy. Or if you work hard, then you get promoted in your office job, and then you're happy. But of course, as we all know, you, me, most of your listeners, the model is exactly the opposite. If you be happy first, then the arrow points to great work, higher productivity, higher creativity, higher sales, etc. And then you have the big success at the end. And if we train our minds to be happy first, then of course, we're providing the bedrock on which all of our future relationships and, you know, jobs and all the conversations we have lie on top of that nice, I think, high water line, which is just a much better place to be operating from. Well, one of the things I found 
really unique was uh, secret number six, which is the secret of never being too busy again. I thought the way you, you, you approached that was really unique, and I'd like you to share that with our listeners a little bit because it's really cool. Sure. Well, I think, first of all, you know, when I stand in front of an audience, and I say, hey, who here has ever been busy before? It's like everyone. If I say, who even was busy today or yesterday? Everyone's hand goes up. It's like the truth of the matter is, and these are all, you know, scientific, you know, these are all research numbers. We're all getting 147 emails a day. We're all checking our phones 150 times a day, which is once every four minutes. And we're making on average 295 plus or minus decisions a day. So, of course, we feel too busy. We're totally bogged down, which is actually part of the reason I love podcasts so much as an aside, because whether I'm commuting or whether I'm at the gym, they force my mind to be in one place for a longer period of time. And I find that so relaxing. But what I articulate in the book is this concept of the three things you must eliminate, and they are choice, time, and access. So if you're okay, I'll talk about each one really briefly. Mm -hmm. Choice. It, it's a paradox of choice that we want to go to the movie theaters with the most movies or go to the shoe store with the most shoes. Yet the increased amount of choice actually undermines our own happiness. We second guess our decisions. We think, ah, should I have got those yellow shoes at the store instead? So actually the research suggests that when we have no choice, when we go to the restaurant and there's a famous restaurant in Toronto uh, called Ruby Watch Co, which I actually quote in the happiness equation, it has, no menu. Every day, it's a full set menu. Every single person in the restaurant eats that. And it's one of the top 10 restaurants out of 7,000 in the city. It's always ranked at the top because people love the idea that someone decides for them, you know? And so what in your life is a low time, low importance decision that you can automate? You can have less choice in the matter. No, you know, Neil, I just, this reminds me to the, uh, how much time it's wasted when people go, you want to go to lunch? Okay, where? Oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> With who? Who's Your whole driving? lunch hour. <laughs> do you want to get a sandwich? What do you want? It? Hold the pickles or extra peppers? What kind of bread? I actually tweeted last week a photo of my menu at Google. I was speaking at Mountain View at the Google Googleplex for promoting the new book, and I took a picture and I tweeted it of the menu for picking out my sandwich. It was, like, exhausting. It was, like, 15 kinds of bread, 15 kinds of sauces. 15 kinds of meat and all these special options like don't make it near the meat or like extra crispy or whatever. It's like, <laughs> I'm like, is there a decision fatigue at Google question mark? But yeah, it's like, how do you eliminate choice? It, you know, can you just do double dinners to your point, to your point, Deb? I'm like, just make twice as much for dinner and take the leftovers for lunch every day. That's Sounds actually simple, what I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it's so we both know that the only ways to replenish your decision-making energy are sleep or glucose. And so that means if you're in an office setting and you can't, you don't have like a nap pod under your desk, then you're getting a chocolate bar or you're, you're going to grab something to eat. It's why people snack. Why, you know, I'm speaking from 10 years at Walmart experience, why people <laughs> snack so much at work because you're just exhausted by the decision. So the first thing to eliminate, to never be too busy again, is choice. The second one is time. Time. And in this one, I quote an article written in The Economist in 1955 by an unknown writer at the time named General Northcote Parkinson. He had an article called Parkinson's Law, and the thesis of the article was in the first sentence. And that thesis was, um, work rises to fill the time available for its completion. 
So put another way, it's like if you have a week to do it, you'll take a week. Mm. Work rises to fill the time available for completion. You really remember sitting at like a university campus and the professor said, hey, that essay due today, I'm going to extend the deadline by an extra week. If you've already done the work, that is draining because you're like, oh, no, I'm going to mentally revisit this thing for another week. So the solution to Parkinson's law is to reduce the amount of time you have to do everything. You know, move things earlier because the kid that does their homework on Friday night is actually the only kid that has the weekend to party. So I use an example of like a tech uh, executive taking his entire team offsite to design a new website from scratch end to end in a one day. No meeting, no email, nobody on vacation, the whole thing from copy to layout to coding to, to like launching the thing online happens in one day till we're done. That creates six months, the normal development cycle of freedom. So the second way never to be too busy again is to eliminate time. The third and final way is access. I counted while working at Walmart six access points to myself email, voicemail, instant messaging, text messaging, someone walking up to my desk, you know, people could just approach me in so many ways. Yet the most effective CEO I worked with had no access points to himself. He was not on social media. Nobody knew his phone number. He didn't respond to any email. He was just so effective one-on-one because he was fully present. And he appeared to be very distant to most people, but as a result, he was very effective. So how do you eliminate access? You cut off the access point to yourself except one. So that means at work, I leave a voicemail that says, you know, you've reached Neil Pasricha, here's my email address. I don't check these voicemails, here's my email address again, and there's no beep. I don't even accept voicemails. And so I revert everything to email. I even disable all notifications, I disable the text messaging software, I delete the instant messenger software, and because it's only one, one way to get to me, like the email, actually as a result, I just open that door when I feel like it. It's not like I have to bookmark, prioritize, and switch between tasks all the time. And in that part of the happiness equation, I talk about you know this, the problems with multitasking, which is a separate concept, but what I'm trying to do is summarize that eliminating choice, time, and access thoughtfully actually makes you never busy. It's an interesting concept because we've had that discussion here uh, in our offices and even within the pages of the magazine of people who have a hard time disconnecting. I think that would uh, go a long way for people if, if they could if they could manage to do that uh, in so many ways. You talk about being busy all the time, and I think people have this idea that, okay, yeah, I'm going to be really busy right now, and I'm not going to have any time for myself right now, but, but someday I'm going to be 65. And then I'm going to walk away from this job and I'm going to collect that 401k and social security if it's still there. Probably not for me, but for others, maybe. Uh, and retirement is going to be great. You say retirement is a broken concept. Why? Yeah, and I've been taking a lot of flack for this part. Maybe the most <laughs> controversial part of the happiest queen. People are like, I'm retiring next year, buddy. Lay off me. <laughs> not something I need to do 30 more years in the meatpacking plant. But here's the thing. Here's why it's a broken concept. Here's what most people don't know. And I went deep into this on the research side uh, to write the book. Retirement was invented out of the blue in 1889 in Germany when Chancellor Otto von Bismarck had a huge youth unemployment issue. And he said, if you're infirm, like if you were unhealthy, you could optionally leave the workplace at age 65 and we would pay you some money from the government. The problem was, 
the average lifespan in Germany back then was 67. Penicillin wasn't discovered for 40 years. He created an arbitrary world standard for this number 65. What's happened in the next 100 years? Well, Western nations have adopted that number. People are living way longer. We all, for some reason, want to retire way earlier. You always hear stories of, like, the guy that only ate soup for 20 years and retired at 35. You know, it's like, <laughs> but why? But why? So you can have 50 years of playing golf? No. That's not true. The healthiest societies in the world, like those of Okinawa and Japan, have seven extra years of lifespan compared to Americans. And do you know what they call retirement in their language? They don't even have a word for retirement. Like literally nothing in their language describes the concept of stopping work completely. Instead, they have a word called ikigai, I-K-I-G-A-I which stands for a reason to get out of bed in the morning, a life purpose. And they live seven years longer. There's an incredible study done uh, in Japan, in Sunday Japan, on the power of having an ikigai. So what I've done in the happiness equation is I say, no, you don't actually want to do nothing. Who cares about the money? You need the four S's. You need social fulfillment, structure in your day, the stimulation of learning new things, and a story to be part of. Like I'm part of something bigger than me. I'm organizing the world's information if I work at Google, or I'm giving human knowledge away for free if I work at Wikipedia, whatever. The point is you have a story that you're part of that you couldn't do by yourself. Social structure, stimulation, and story, that's the path to happiness, not retiring and doing nothing. You know, I think there's really something to that because my grandfather, we always joke that the minute he stops working is the minute he's going to die. Uh, because he retired, quote unquote, 15 years ago from farming, and then he started an insurance business, and then and then he's not doing that, but now he's doing odd jobs for other farmers around, and and he's felt like that's been his purpose, and he's going to be 80 next month, and uh, so I, I think there's something to that longevity and finding your purpose. Absolutely, I actually opened that secret number four, which is called the dream we all have that is completely wrong, with the story of my high school guidance counselor who was forced by the government into mandatory retirement at age 65. And the next week he had a heart attack and died. And, you know, we all have a story like that of someone in our life where retirement really kind of ended their life. And that's why Fortune magazine reports that the two most dangerous years of our lives are the year we're born and the year we retire. I mean, I was, <laughs> I guess I've been on like this evangelical like cycle for a while, but I'm on, I'm on the book for a few weeks ago. I'm in a cab the guy driving the cab and I get into a conversation about retirement because he says to me, it would set me off. He's like, well, I just got to do like 18 more years and I retire. <laughs> wow. Do you like your job? I'm like, <laughs> like, I'm like, do you like your job? He's like, no, I hate it. But 18 more years. I'm like counting down the days, you know? And I'm like, oh man, I went on this huge rant and he's just like, you mean I should, you know what I mean? It's like, it, it's, a, it's a mind shift, <laughs> but it just means that like, if you do what, if you aren't doing what you love now, and following some passions, it can be outside of your income-producing job. I'm not saying like quit work and go be a you know go be a painter on the street. I'm saying supplement your income-producing job with your passions because they will provide the four S's, and that will be fulfill, fulfilling enough that you'll want to do it forever. You won't want to just end it. Yeah, I get I get uh, really frustrated with people who absolutely hate what they do for a living to the point that they can't even understand that, okay, you either need to stop doing that or you need to find a way to enjoy it. Because why do you want to be miserable for 18 more years? I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, and I partly, you know, when I, 
I'm so with you there, but at the same time, I, I wonder if like, I'm a, I always worry that I'm in like this elite position where I can comment on that because, you know, my parents struggled really hard. They were immigrants. They provided a great, they helped my sister and I pay for her education. And so and I always wonder, I'm like, am I just, you know, speaking from this soapbox where not everybody can afford to. But then when I talk to people in that position and I, and I say, you know, I have these three tests in the happiness equation and finding your authentic self. I say, well, what do you do on Saturday morning when you have nothing to do? And they go on really passionately about, you know, going to the gym or coaching a baseball team. I'm like, Mm -hmm. you know, hidden right below the surface there is something else that's lighting their fire. And, you know, I I just think that when we follow our fires, you know, it's better for the world. I I have the the same, you know, the same dilemma. I do have the whole, well, I do have the best job in the world. So, you know, maybe I am, you know, in the wrong position. I don't want to judge. But I always think you've got to find a way not necessarily to love your job, but to be okay with your job. Maybe the I do this so that I can support my family. I do this so that I can coach baseball. I do this so that I can do something else with my time. I I think that goes back to the what determines our happiness, 10% and 40% and, and so on. It, we're reacting to our daily lives in that sense. Like, okay, I, this job isn't necessarily my favorite thing. Uh, but like you said, it's, it's making sure that my kids have, uh, the money to go to their sports and I really enjoy being involved in that. So I don't know. Maybe I, does that, does that make sense to you, Neil? Well, well, it totally does. And you know, I mean, I'm thinking like, I, I just shared with you guys, I worked 10 years at Walmart. I only left six weeks ago. Now you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, um, JR, you said like, yo, Neil had sold a million copies of the book of awesome. It was a huge hit. Well, you know what? That happened five years ago. My point mm-hmm. is that success publishing wise, speaking wise, financial, financial wise, came while I still had my day job and the day job was great. I'm not saying it was a bad job. I wouldn't say that, but my passion of writing about awesome things every day for a thousand straight days, you know, grew into something organically, naturally. And it took me five more years before I said, okay, I'll lean into this, you know, to the point where like I break the umbilical cord with my day job, but I'm, I'm just only illustrating that story for any listeners who are like, Oh, does that mean I need to quit today? I I'm actually of the opposite mind. I think hold on to what you got because you know, if you have benefits or healthcare or a social network, like keep that, but also get the, mm-hmm. um, you know, passions going. And I have a model I call the three bucket model for an average week, which is there's 168 hours in the week. That's three buckets of 56. If you sleep eight hours a night, that's 56 hours. If you work an average job, that's 56 hours. If you add in the commuting and the emails from home, and then you, those two buckets justify and pay for and create your third question mark bucket <laughs> where you can do anything you want. They're created by your investment in the other two areas. I love it. It's a great concept. And Neil, I, I could probably talk to you forever. Um, you're in alignment with so much of what we talk about here at Live Happy. It's amazing. Tell people where they can get the book. Anything you've got going on that you'd like to you'd like to share with us coming out? Sure. Well, you know, my new book is called The Happiness Equation. We're lucky enough it debuted at number one on the international and Canadian bestseller list this first week. Um, it's available everywhere books are sold. I, you know, the beautiful thing about podcasts is. Someone right now could be in a gym in Sweden or they could be driving to work in New Zealand. Like, I just think there's this community that's happening right now in the podcasting world. I'm envious of you guys having one because I'm like, it's so cool. So I have no idea where people get books in their own 
country or city or town, but wherever there's books, I hope there is your book and my book, <laughs> The Happiness Equation, in yeah. those bookstores. It's been a joy having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. And I hope we get to do this again sometime soon. I'd love to do it again. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's entirely my pleasure. I really appreciate it. And if you would like to increase your happiness, you can go to livehappynow.com for free downloads, including Happiness 101, the 20 for 20 challenge, and Happiness 202. That's the advanced level course. The secret to never being too busy. Again, the graduate level course, you have to buy every Live Happy magazine and listen to every podcast. So if you're looking for your master's, there's there's your way. Uh, but tune in next week. We're going to be speaking with Kristen Meekoff on the difficulty of finding joy after the loss of a loved one. If there's anything you'd like to share with us about this podcast or any other podcast, again, take our survey, livehappy.com slash survey, or you can send us feedback on Twitter at livehappy, facebook.com slash livehappy, or you can send us an email podcast at livehappy.com. For everyone at Live Happy Magazine and the Live Happy Now podcast, I'm J.R. Houston saying so long. Thank you, and remember to always live happy.